This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Won't somebody please think of the children? This is Helen Lovejoy's refrain on The Simpsons anytime there's a fight to be had about what the government will do, and it's a joke, but it's not really a joke. Children are necessarily central to our politics. The state ensures that they get educated. It prohibits them from working. It requires parents to support them, and it ensures that someone supports them if the parents don't. Or at least it's supposed to do all those things. And that means children's lives are highly regulated by the state, and they're regulated even more by their parents. The state's not the original source of parental authority over children, but that authority is backed up by law. And one of my guests this week says this is one of the core problems with the liberal order of society. A liberal society is based on the idea that we butt out of each other's decisions and let people live according to the beliefs they want. But we have to make collective decisions about how the government will interface with children and what it will permit and require parents to do with regard to their children. We treat children illiberally, and to some extent we have to agree societally on the manner in which we will do so. These choices can't always align with the preferences of all parents, let alone with the preferences of all children. So how do we square that circle? How do we make these choices in a liberal way, or at least that is consistent with liberalism? That's a question at the center of a lot of current political debates. Liz Brunig is here to talk about that. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and her piece is called Kids Have No Place in a Liberal Democracy. Hi, Liz. Josh, thanks for having me on. We're also joined this week by Tim Carney. Tim is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior political columnist at The Washington Examiner. Hey, Tim. Glad to be here. So, Liz, can you lay out for us these facts about children? Why are they a problem for liberalism? Well, liberalism imagines people who have autonomy, right? So so liberalism imagines people to be, you know, these sort of bundles of, of rights and obligations and duties and privileges and so forth. And that these things make up, you know, personhood. For children, they're people, obviously. They're like sensate. Um, and sentient and so forth. And they have agendas and personalities, etc. But they don't have autonomy. And the reason they don't have autonomy is because we can't really release them to their own designs because they, they're children. They don't know how to do things. Their judgment is somewhat confused. They're mistaken about lots of things in the world that cause them to make decisions that are risky to themselves and others. And so for this reason and their their development, we prohibit children from making the kinds of decisions we allow adults to make, which means they have to be made for them. So they're persons who lack autonomy. Liberalism imagines people who are sort of free and equal subjects, able to exercise their rights and exchange in commerce and contracts together as bilateral transactions where everyone knows what they're doing. And obviously that's never going to apply to children. So they become this huge source of trouble for liberalism. And so that's, this is not a new problem. This is a very old problem, right? And so, and yet we've had various kinds of liberal orders in the United States and other countries for a long time. So how do, how do people think about dealing with this problem historically? This has been one of my frustrations with the, all of the political arguing about children over the last couple of years. A lot of people have been talking about this like it's new. And I realize COVID is new, but certainly, I mean, curriculum fights are really old. And people have been talking about this like it's, like it's a fundamental change to the political order. So what, how have we dealt with this in the past? Yeah, no, this is a constant um, in this political order. And for long periods of time, I think there was, you know, significant social consensus about what to do with children, such that the, the citizens of the United States didn't have explosive battles like this, plus the expectations uh, for, for, for what was uh, what we were to do with children. So, for instance, in the 
colonial period and the run-up to the Civil War, it's not like there was mass public schooling. And so the question of what to do with children was relegated almost entirely to the parents who had uh, the sort of dominion over children that we don't tolerate in the law in this day and age. So that's one way of solving it, which is more or less just refusing to honor their personhood, mm-hmm. saying parents have complete control over children and we we you know more or less don't prosecute crimes against them, et cetera, et cetera, until they reach you know, very extreme and we don't protect the exercise of their constitutional rights and so forth. The other way to handle it, which I think you you really start to see once mass public schooling in the United States gets underway and in, in, in the 20th century, especially you get some remarkable Supreme Court cases, is they fight about it. I mean, they go to court and they fight it out. That's what the Scopes Monkey Trial is about, right? And um, they use these opportunities to have fights about public schooling and vaccination and what ought to be done with children, when, where, and why. Should they work? Should they not work? How should they be charged with crimes, et cetera? To have, you know, essentially adult fights about adult issues. And these have been very intense public debates from the beginning. Right. Tim, um, Liz refers to the courts there, but also, I mean, I think even more often these fights are in legislatures and you have arguments about, you know, the, I mean, if you go back enough time, it's about, you know, compulsory schooling and the length of compulsory schooling and the content of curricula and that sort of thing. Um, obviously it extends beyond education, but ed- education is probably the the one biggest touch point here. What is the conservative approach to this? Because I, fe- I feel like I see a split among conservatives right now. Uh, some who are basically trying to do more devolution of that authority to parents parents, and some who would like a more conservative centralized order in education or even in the government more broadly. I mean, at the extreme end, you see the, you know, this handful of Catholic integralists who basically are trying to have like a, a Christian state, um, which is not a significant political movement in the U.S. But I mean, especially back when conservatives were more impressed with their own cultural power than they are right now. There were certain visions about it. the state as a centralizing yep. force for certain conservative ideals about dealing with children. So that's one approach. Or you can try to devolve it. What is, I mean, what does conservatism tell you to do here? Well, so there's a lot of things caught up in this. One is sort of different values, right? And that um, there's ways in which our values have diverged from one another as a culture, I think, compared to in the past. There are things we used to agree on that we don't. But another on the conservative side, there's often sort of this patriotism, right? And I, I encounter that sometimes with people disagreeing with me if I'm talking about localism and they'll say, well, no, we're all one people and what we need is an education that ties us together. And to some extent, we have that no matter what. I send my kids to Catholic schools and they have a whole unit, like a semester on like Maryland pride, and then they build up to national pride and, and yada, yada. And to some extent, the Catholic schools are regulated by the government, obviously much more lightly than a public school, but they're they're not completely free to structure education yeah. as they wish. And, and we're, we're we're centralized and that we're regulated by an archdiocese. Right. And so we're, we, we don't do, you know, we don't do things that somebody might, you know, think we're freaky and weird and, and all that. But what conservatives pushed back in like the Reagan and the first Bush era was this national curriculum that would make us all love America more. And then it kind of the, this national sort of history curriculum got tied up in the Clinton administration. And it was a perfect to me reductio ad absurdum of conservatives trying to centralize on a national level, these educational things, because the Clinton uh, suggested curriculum, like didn't mention Paul Revere once. And there, you know, there was all of that. But then um, I, I do think that some of the Trump era is conservatives finally adopting what they see as the the tactics of the left, which is to say, I think the left is trying to force all their culture war crap on us. So we're going to do the same, which is not my instinct. My instinct is 
And I, I, with Liz, I, like, I, I, I'm so glad you wrote that piece. I loved it. The end, you kind of got me excited. This is democracy. We are supposed to fight about it, right? We are supposed to have debates. I think the debates can be more peaceful and at slightly lower stakes if they are done at a more local level. What Republicans get bad press for is when they pass these statewide things, micromanaging curricula. And I don't, I don't agree with Republicans when they do that, because I would rather say, no, again, let this happen on as local a level as possible. Some things can be left up to parents. Some will be left up to school districts. Some will be left up to principals or teachers. I want to start by broadening out and trying to figure out what, what the objective of the state is here. So that, you know, the state has this role uh, in regulating children. The state is not purely acting as an agent of parents, right? I mean, one of the things it's doing is, is it's, an act, it's acting as an agent of parents. Most parents do not wish to educate their children themselves, even if they were in a good position to do that. They want this government service to do this. And one important thing as the government structures that service is what parents want. But it's, it's not the only thing, right? So what, is, what are we trying to do here? And in particular, I mean, I think in some places, like if you look in France, I think it's explicitly a part of that model that you are trying to build like a, a French person. That there are some uh, there are some unifying national ideals, and one of the roles of the of the state through the education system is to inculcate those ideals, even or perhaps especially over the objection of parents. You're trying to basically, to some extent, homogenize the society. You're trying to build a shared set of cultural values. Is that something the state is supposed to be doing here? And and if it is, you know, obviously some people are not going to like that. What is what does that mean for them? Well, that's something liberalism has to do. That's why it's explicit in France. France and the United States are similar in that they're both countries that uh, had you know 18th century uh, liberal democratic revolutions against monarchs, and that's exactly why those themes carry uh, identically through our histories. Liberal democracies have to do that, right? Because the things that make you a citizen of a liberal democracy are abstract and intellectual things. They're not automatic and obvious or concrete and material things, right? So one thing you'll often hear from, for instance, your, your dissident right element, uh, even your sort of proto or pseudo fascist element is, you know, the things that make people people, the things that make um, the French, the French, it's not these, you know, ridiculous curricula that these liberal democratic governments come up with. It's their language. It's their cuisine. It's their shared history. It's their land. It's their borders, etc. It's the fact that they live in this place and they have this culture and they have for thousands of years and it makes them unique in the world. And you can't teach that in a school. It's inculcated into you by growing up in a culture. That's what they would say. You, you don't think the school is a component to that? Children spend hours a day. Well, in well, school. they would say, well, were there no French people before public schools? I mean, obviously, your Frenchness is inculcated into you culturally. But liberal democracy comes in and says, well, no, actually, a core element of being French is this new thing that we're introducing, which is liberal democracy. That's what it means now. And in the United States, that's all it's ever meant. We have no pre-liberal history, unlike the French. Right. And so what we end up saying, and Hannah Arendt writes about this in her essay, The Crisis in Education, you know, is we're going to pack all these kids in and we're going to make them essentially excited citizens of a liberal democracy and educate them in these abstract ideas. So unlike other people in the world who are linked together by language or a history with this land or cuisine or whatever, we Americans are linked together theoretically by, you know, 
agreement with this project, building this free and equal country of, of citizens who, are, you know, relate to each other without uh, the mediation of aristocratic hierarchy, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And I, I do think that has to happen, but of course no one's going to like it. I mean, liberalism relies on kind of illiberal means to reproduce itself. This is a point I make in my essay. You've got to like ram it into kids' heads because it's not going to flow to them naturally in the ether, right? So you've got to like sit them down in a government-mandated place they'd rather not be for several hours a day and convince them this is a great idea. But if you're going to have a liberal democracy, that's sort of how you've got to do it. And I, I don't think it's a terrible a terrible thing. But obviously, parents hugely disagree on, A, what being an American means, what's necessary for liberal democracy, and and then, B, how to inculcate that into kids. These are sources of huge torment, and they imperil liberal democracy. There's a million ways we could go off of all that Liz just said. And the, the most important true thing you just said, Liz. What's the most important false thing I just said? <laughs> <laughs> we can I'll do the true thing get first. To that too. Or it, it was actually underlying what you said, which is that schools don't just and ought not just teach you your times tables, how to read, how to spell. That is something I actually hear more from conservatives, but also from mostly from moderates actually too. Let's get values out of the schools. Leave the values up to the parents. And schools just teach basic stuff. I think Liz and I both agree that that's um, not historically what American schools have tried to do. And it's, I think it's not possible. I think you can't educate your child without also trying to form them into something like the man and the, or the woman that you want them to be. And um, this, this was actually before the Supreme Court to some extent in a, in a recent case. And the piece I wrote after it was I said, yes, my child's math teacher is also a religion teacher. All of our kids go to Catholic schools. And the men and women who teach my sons and daughters, part of the reason we choose their schools is that especially in middle school and high school, we want positive role models. They don't get a positive male role model at home is what I always joke, but that we want positive uh, role <laughs> models for them to uh, guide them towards that and to the, the way that our math, the math teacher will correct the kids is showing sort of Christian correction and compassion and all of that stuff. So you can't educate your kids without also inculcating values. I want, I want to push back on that, though, because, I mean, I think your statement is literally true that all education involves inculcating values. I mean, even things like children should learn to read is a normative statement. It just doesn't read to us that way because everyone agrees with it. It's not a, it's not a point of, of, of disagreement. But you could have education that was at the margin more focused on things where there's more agreement and less focused on things where there's more disagreement. I mean, yes. for example, that, that math class that you're describing there, Tim, I, I understand where the Catholic values come in that, but I also suspect that you could put lots of non-Catholics children in that math class and they would have no objections to the manner or style of the education. They might not even perceive it as Catholic or if they did, they would perceive it as, you know, an aspect of Catholicism that aligns with their values yeah. about how their children should be educated. So you can structure education. And maybe you give something up when you do this, but you can structure education in ways that these flashpoints are just triggered less than they otherwise would be. And I think that's part of how we've muddled through this problem for over 100 years. Yeah. I've seen a lot of very interesting public schools. So I've been out to uh, Salt Lake City and other parts of Utah. There, the public schools are sort of quasi-Mormon entities, often adjacent to the school. 
And in one that I visited in, in a suburb right outside of Salt Lake City, the kids didn't have to cross any street or any parking lot. The sidewalk was built to what's called a seminary, which is basically religious education for an hour a day. So all the kids from the public school, the public school is scheduled to have free time, like an hour, an hour and a half. And the parents who are in the Church of Latter-day Saints have signed their kids up to go down the block to the seminary and they get their Mormon education from other teachers there. And then they return to the public schools. So the public school is in teaching religion, but it is partnered with the church. And so that's the sort of thing where that's a public education. If my kids went there during that free time, they would do their homework or play baseball or, or whatever, or do something Catholic, pray a rosary, whatever we do. Um, Fight with the Mormons. <laughs> but the Mormons would all be uh, inside their, their seminary. Um, and then other places where there's just more of an agreement. I mean, again, like Tacoma Park is this liberal little pretty autonomous village in, in Montgomery County. And there their public schools are going to be teaching their values, which is, you know, they adopted probably Nicole Hannah-Jones' rough draft into their history curriculum and that sort of thing. And that the bigger you make it, the harder it is, the, the more neutered you have to make it to not trigger fights or the higher stakes the fights are. And I think that's what we saw in sort of Northern Virginia in, in the last few months. You know, on principle, I, I, I don't hugely disagree. I mean, you know, I don't have any problem with local control of schooling. I think theoretically, at least in large part, uh, that's how things are already set up. As Tim pointed out, there have been historical interventions that have changed that somewhat, and they do appear to have increased the frequency of these battles to some degree. But a lot of them still remain, it seems to me, at least perfectly local. So, I mean, I don't think it's a panacea, but I'm not the sort of leftist who has a huge problem with local ordinances or local governance. That's not an issue for me. I don't really believe in using policy, especially material policy, uh, which would be funding of schools, et cetera, as levers to do social engineering. That's just sort of a red line for me. There are things that people believe that I don't like, that I wish they weren't kind of getting into. But if the locality is on board and that's what they have voted on, I think there are ways of dealing with it other than the sort of defund or or topple approach. Isn't all education social engineering, though? What are you? Where are you defining that line? What becomes social engineering that you're trying to avoid? Well, I mean, social engineering by using uh, access to material resources, right? That's something that I kind of draw a red line around. So using, saying, cutting welfare so women will get married instead of using welfare to have Okay. Unwanted children, right? So I don't believe that's a red line for me. Likewise, cutting funding to schools or threatening to pull federal funding, etc. If uh, municipalities or states are teaching or not teaching particular things, I find that all a bit tedious. Does that mean that you would oppose, for example, uh, requirements that you know localities must provide education up through grade twelve, no. or that localities must teach? Right, but but I mean that, but that's that's what I'm trying to drill down on. What social engineering? Yes. Because that even in, even with local control, you have a fair amount of state regulation and and federal significant federal nudges, if not federal uh, regulation, that tell schools what to do that tells them how many hours to instruct and you know that and that tells them about what subject matter they have to cover and i think you know there, there's this sort of you know it when you see it difference between things that are are broadly consensus and things that people will see as social engineering but i think it can be hard to figure out exactly where that line is well sure i mean i i, I assume there's ambiguity in every subject but in this case what i'm what i'm more referring to is 
you know, frequently in the context of these massive debates over what schools are teaching, not teaching, what they have available on the shelves, what they don't, you hear, I think, especially people of the left will frequently argue for, you know, pulling funding or cutting funding to XYZ schools if they're going to do XYZ thing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I find that to be a kind of suspicious or, or you know, path or one that I'm, I'm personally unwilling to agree with. But is there some social engineering inherent in public school? Sure. Yes. And and to that degree, like I said, I think it's it's necessary for liberal democracy. If I had my druthers, would I have set up a liberal democracy? Who knows? But that's where we're at. <laughs> and it makes sense for peace to sustain it as, as peacefully and as stably as possible. So that's what we have to do. Tim, as you noted a little bit earlier, uh, I, a lot of the push now around regulating local schools is, is coming from conservatives in, in state capitals. Mm-hmm. They're seeing educational trends that they don't like for one reason or another in local schools. And they're, they're bringing these state laws that attempt to control not just the policies that are made by school boards, but the behavior of principals and teachers, employees of the schools. And I, and I think what conservatives perceive happening here, and I think it is happening, even if it's not happening to the extent that they, that they think it is, is people in the bureaucracy, public employees, teachers, principals, superintendents, using their control of the, over the bureaucracy to try to shape what it is that schools do um, in a particular ideological direction. And they want to stop that. And you end up with these very blunt tools that cause all sorts of problems yep. because you're trying to define exactly what it is you're trying to stop them to do in, in terms of the manner they teach history. And these laws sound so broad that teachers not unreasonably may think that they're not allowed to talk about the role of race at all in, in American history and things like that. So how do how do you get conservatives comfortable with devolving those those sorts of decisions to the people with the local subject matter expertise who know what's going on in the school who can exercise judgment about what's the what's in the interest of students if they don't trust the employees to bring their values to bear when making those decisions Yeah I mean part of the problem is that I think the and I think this is a, a sort of modern thing that happens because of mass media because of the internet because of CNN and Fox etc I think the the sort of evolutionary story we sometimes tell about why parents freak out about, you know, every little threat being massive, your kids are going to be abducted by a stranger is because if it happens 40 times a year and every one of them ends up in the news, we can't process that something that happened halfway across the country isn't happening in our own little community. And so the increased centralization of our attention has made us think that everybody's problem is our problem. It's sort of this perversion of the, you know, the idea of an injustice to anywhere is an injustice everywhere. And so the idea that in Austin, some hippie teacher is teaching some hippie stuff really upsets somebody in in another part of Texas, or it even upsets somebody in in another part of the country that in Greenwich Village, where where I come from, you know, they're certainly teaching stuff that, you know, wouldn't be taught in a private Christian school in rural Alabama. And so the idea that everybody else's problems are our problems, I think is driven a lot by the mass media. But also to get back to Liz's essay, in a liberal democracy, we can let other people mind their own business. But when it comes to kids, you can no longer let them mind their own business. If a, if a six-year-old kid is being presented with stuff that's sexualized far beyond what's appropriate for that age. And so that gets us into this bond where we can't just leave stuff up to other people's business. And that's why there is a, a child protective services, right? Like I spend a lot of my time writing or thinking about, you know, the, the helicopter parents, the parents who get CPS called on them because they let their kids play at the playground. 
But the, the dark side of it is that the, these people are often reacting to truly abusive situations where we cannot allow sort of full parental autonomy. But then the conservative, especially the conservative libertarian fear is, are they going to come after me because I'm not teaching my daughters you should be on birth control from the time you hit puberty? Are they going to come after me because I am teaching my children, you know, that they are uh, sons and daughters of, of God and, and et cetera? And so that is inevitably messy and scary. I do say that sort of devolving things can make it less messy and scary. But the point of the conclusion of Liz's essay is um, there's not going to be any peace on this because this is where the sort of the, the peace treaty that is liberal democracy doesn't apply when it comes to children. To drill down on that, to, to clarify, I think what you're describing there is certain people seeking an expansion of what the state thinks of in terms of what it protects children from in terms of decisions by their own parents. I mean, exposing children to ideas that other people would consider age inappropriate is not something that ordinarily child protective services would be would be involved in. You'd have to have a, you know, a more specific offense there. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, sexual abuse or that sort of thing is something that's of CBS's concern or pornographic materials and that's and that sort of thing. But conservatives freaking out about Drag Queen Story Hour, I mean, I don't think that's something that CPS would or or, or should involve itself in anyway. No, but I'm, I'm saying that it, it, showing your children pornography is something that it's not morally tolerable. If I found out my neighbor was doing that, I would stop him if I needed to use force from doing that, or I would get the state to stop him from showing his eight-year-old pornography. I don't know what the average drag queen story hour is. Now they've got them in my neighborhood in, in Silver Spring, and, and we, we skipped that. We were busy that day. But <laughs> I mean, I, this is an aside. I just, I don't see drag queens as sexualized. I understand why they seem that way to conservatives. I think drag is so like campy and unsexy, basically, mm -hmm. that I, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's like it goes back to, to you know, to clown performances and that sort of thing. I, I, I understand why, why people would have a different perception of that, but I don't I don't see it as teaching about sex at all. And, and, and again, I'm not going I'm not painting story hours with a broad yeah. brush. I'm just, again, a kid who grew up in Greenwich Village and has a certain right. impression from drag queens in that. But could I ask Josh sort of a yeah. bigger question to step away from drag queens for a moment? The idea of, of children as a, as a challenge to liberal democracy, one of the things it reminded me of, though, is sort of to what extent having children should be seen as like a consumer choice. And I bring this up because uh -huh. it, it came up during debates over uh, a universal basic income. And there was um, Dylan Matthews on, on the left had said, I said, do kids get this money? Do parents get this money for their kids? And he said, no, if parents want to spend their money on kids, that's their choice, just as if they want to spend their money like on motorcycles. And then on the right, you had a Wall Street Journal editorial mocking the idea of an expanded child tax credit by saying, is there going to be a doggy or a kitty child tax credit, et cetera? So both of these are mindsets that I think are sort of this atomized Rousseauian thing that says, well, if you want to have kids, it's entirely up to you, but you can't make me pay for this. And this is a place where I think Liz and I probably agree. It's like, actually, no, people are people. And uh, I, I don't want you to pay for my kids. I work really hard so that you don't have to pay for my kids. But on the other hand, yeah, you do have to accommodate my kids. And it's not me like becoming a motorcycle collector. This is fundamentally different. I don't think there's enough of a consensus in our politics today that people having kids is a good and natural thing that deserves accommodation rather than just a consumer choice. 
I, I disagree. I think your side of this is embedded in our public policy in free public education. Mm-hmm. We have it's an enormous category of public expenditure to support the raising of children. And you know, we can have arguments on the margin about whether we should spend more money on that, whether through tax credits or a universal basic income or childcare subsidies or all sorts of things. But I, it's I think it's table stakes that the state invests uh, in the raising of children and and therefore does net transfers from people without children to people with children. So I think you know people and I think people sort of forget K twelve when they're talking about that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Liz, do you, do you see this as a, as a live debate? It's a live debate on Twitter. <laughs> I think in public policy, there is an acknowledgement that it's just morally wrong for the state to ignore the welfare of children and not support children precisely because they are so helpless and they are people within this country's borders, even if it doesn't have a fantastic philosophical script for dealing with them. It would just be unconscionable for the government to, you know, ignore and abandon them. So I think you do see widespread support for stuff like K through 12, which, as Joss says, people forget it's a welfare program, but it is. People forget, um, you know, about CHIP, you know, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which, you know, I don't think anybody in Congress wants to be seen as attacking CHIP or like trying to destroy that. Children are almost always excluded when folks on the right are talking about reducing or or cutting, trimming back welfare programs that uh, are prone to excess or fraud, like Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that part is there. Now, you could raise the question, is that because there's a, a sort of public recognition that the government should invest in the raising of children? Or is it just because you know, liberal democracies, they need to, you know, kind of create insurance policies for themselves. I don't know. It's probably a mix of both. But emanating from, I think, hoi polloi, from this sort of general pop, is the idea that it's good and nice to raise children. On Twitter, yeah, I mean, there's just all kinds of derangement. You've got to kind of try to avoid, um, you know, you're dealing with some of the most unusual people in the world on Twitter. And I mean that (laughs) in, in the most... Uh, uh, loaded way. Um, <laughs> I, I'm willing to agree that I I am putting too much emphasis on crazy ideas I'm finding online. And again, not just Twitter, but Vox.com and WallStreetJournal.com where, where I read these things. But I worry about these, though, because I am very worried about the the collapsing birth rate, its causes and effects. And I think one of the effects will be more people living in sort of social circles that are fundamentally childless and thus an erosion of this idea. Um, I mean, most of the people I talk to who say, oh, well, yeah, I don't want to have kids, but I sp- they, they then say, I spend all the time I can with my nieces and nephews. I love being their favorite aunt, yada, yada. A generation from now, you look at Japan, the the people, a lot of people won't have nieces and nephews because they won't have brothers and siblings, sisters, because they won't have cousins, et cetera. And so I do see a possibility, a generation down the line of too many elites being out of the world where children are at the forefront of their mind and that that having negative uh, cultural and policy effects. I want to ask Liz about, we talked about how these fights are not new, they're very old, but I I think there has been an increase in the intensity uh, of this in our politics over the last couple of years. And and COVID's one of the drivers of that. I don't think it's the only driver. I want want to actually start with another one, which is, I mean, do do you agree with my assessment that you've seen basically a bureaucratic effort 
driven by people who, you know, come out of education schools overwhelmingly with politics to the left of center, trying to use schools more as a as a tool to promote an ideology. Uh, I mean, obviously not every public school in the country, but I think there are, you know, there are real examples people are pointing to where curricula have gotten more controversial than they used to be. And they're reacting to that. And and I think that, you know, the the driver, the initial driver of that, you know, setting aside whatever its merits are, very often was not elected officials. It was, you know, people who are employees of the government. Right. So I think we have become much more polarized. The tone of our hyper-polarized political debates has become much more vituperative, especially since Trump. I mean, I heard that there was a guy who was fired actually from his government job in the, in the days before the 2016 election for using the term scumbag on Twitter. And it's hard to imagine that would ever have happened in a post-Trump world, <laughs> you know, precisely because things have become so much more intense. It's hard to even remember a period when we were so genteel. But it did happen. Uh, in the not too distant past. And so I think that there's there's a, an intensity that hasn't been here before just due to the polarization. There has been a special sort of venom, I think, that arose during the Trump years and a certain intensity that arose during the Trump years that has, certainly stands out to me. You know, it, it's interesting. I grew up in Texas public schools. They were definitely using the curriculum to promote ideology. That might have been a result, as you said, of local a debate on the subject and the the right just having the numbers there. But, you know, to the degree that you have just sort of what I think the public would broadly agree to be, uh, you know, kind of radical curriculum going in front of kids who are perhaps not fully prepared to interact with it critically, etc. Um, yeah, I think the people who institute those curricula feel like they're doing the best thing for these children, they feel like society is falling short, is abandoning kids. I mean, there are narratives right now in public that, you know, essentially there's no one there for young children of certain kinds. It's it's obviously the case that, you know, it's difficult to be a, a, a black child in America. And I think a lot of activists who point to these issues will cite the fact that, you know, you have lots of young black men, some of them kids like Trayvon Martin, have been killed by police or by people acting as sort of proxies for these vigilantes, et cetera. And they'll say, you know, why doesn't the curriculum address the anxieties and troubles and, and questions that these children might have about the world they're growing up in? So I think, you know, that's a decent area to address. I think that makes sense. But then in lots of other domains, um, I think these activists kind of have the same zeal and the same tendency to say, well, no one's looking out for these young trans kids. Again, that's probably true. It's probably the case that it is very, very difficult to be a young trans kid. It's it's just also the case that, you know, that curricula shift, those changes to curricula that are, are going to incorporate those issues and, and be inclusive and address those questions head on, obviously going to be extremely controversial especially in a period as prime for controversy and especially in a period as prime for personal insults as now. Tim, I th and I think this, this gets at a broader political phenomenon right now, which is that I think conservatives are acutely aware of the, the institutions in which they have always lacked power, or that they increasingly lack power. I think they see corporate America uh, as an institution where at least, you know, it's not, it's not that corporate America is a, is a left 
socialist force or anything like that. But you have, you know, the, the, you have certain cultural ideals that have taken hold in, hold in corporate America. And I think that's driving that phenomenon that you're seeing with conservatives trying to use the political branches to assert more control over these other institutions in ways that are illiberal and that, and that go beyond just children. I don't, I don't want to, you know, go broadly to vaccine mandates and that sort of thing. But I think part of the turn toward a liberalism that you see on the right, that you see Ron DeSantis prohibiting private businesses in the state of Florida from requiring vaccines to enter the businesses. It's a reaction from conservatives to the loss of, to their feeling that they lack influence in other institutions and therefore they need to lean more on government. It takes them away from small government, takes them away from liberalism. I think, I think schools is one, but not the only area where we're seeing that. Yeah. And I think that what I prescribe generally with a Often, you know, my my nine to five libertarianism when it comes to Washington D.C., my localist conservatism, etc., is calling for a peace. Is saying, look, different people can live different ways, and this um, seems to have become not possible in recent years. When a pizza parlor in Indiana got descended upon by the media because the reporters went around searching for somebody who said, oh, well, I don't think we would, you know, uh, we would get hired by a gay wedding. And, and, you know, it was a theoretical gay wedding, a theoretical gay pizza, Indiana wedding. And so when that happened, people said, well, is this is this going to happen to all of us now? The sort of chill out argument would be these were some idiot reporters. The state wasn't actually doing this. But then you can point at a baker in Colorado whose life has been ruined for, you know, uh, and I mean, not ruined, but has been turned upside down. He can't be a baker. He's now a professional def- uh, litigant. <laughs> um, and so what you uh, so this perception that and I often w- wonder when will it be the state next? When will the state come after the things that I belong to, the institutions, the schools, the churches, etc.? Me calling for peace at that point sounds like retreat to my conservative brethren who say, "No, we have to go on the counteroffensive." And you could argue that they're turning to the state more than the left is. We could we could play out that game, but sort of your question on the perception, yeah, that the culture war. Conservatives feel the left is on the offense and that the best defense is a strong counter offense. And so, Liz, what would your way forward here be? I mean, I know you're you're not generally crazy about the, the liberal order, but when we see these contradictions, these fights that I think, you know, I mean, the, the, the Baker stuff, it arises from the difficulty of having a rules-based order here. If you're trying to both, you know, have rules, rules about non-discrimination and rules about religious pluralism and, and freedom, you can't write a rule that protects both of those things in all circumstances. And so you you might sort of think that, you know, we should have people should be sensible and reasonable with each other and try to reach accommodations that, that balance both of those goals and achieve both of them most of the time. But you can't write a law that says that. And that's a problem when the when the government starts from that position. So what do you what is your approach to backing out these these areas of, of conflict? Is there a way to preserve a liberal order around them? Yeah, I mean, you know, I see issues with the liberal order. I, I have been a critic, but, you know, it's what we have. And I'm certainly for its preservation at this point for the same reasons I cited earlier, peace and stability, right? That's going to be the, the best thing for, for us. And so it's what we have to work with. So we should try to make it work well. And I think there certainly needs to be some sort of lowering of um, tensions. It, it feels as though it's become impossible to speak in any register other than catastrophe. I understand some parents are unhappy with the curricula 
at the schools where their kids are. I went to schools where there were dumb curriculum choices being made. They could not teach human evolution in Texas public schools. They had a disclaimer in our science textbooks that said, you know, human evolution is a theory, right? It's, it's not been proven. And I remember kids laughing about it and messing with our teacher about it and saying, you know, Mr. Scribner, our biology teacher, is this, uh, is human evolution just a theory? Do you think it's fake? How do you think we happen? And he just said, you know, what do you punks think? You know, obviously blowing it off. And um, we blew it off at the time. So kids are pretty resilient. You do actually have quite a bit of uh, a role in what your kids think and how they receive information, whether they're critical of the information they receive or whether they kind of accept it, you know, sort of whole cloth based on the role that you play at home. My kids are in public school, so this is on my mind. And, you know, the reality is that I think there has to be some de-escalation of rhetoric because as far as I can see, this is much more of a rhetorical fight in many cases than uh, a substantive one. I remember in all of the debates over critical race theory in schools, I never actually saw an example of a lesson plan or a, a lecture that was given in a class that I thought, whoa, okay, yeah, that's way over the line. This is doing precisely what you know, XYZ critics are saying. People did produce library books that were somewhat racy. I find it of interest to go after library books that are about the emotional and psychological aspects of sexuality in a world where we've decided not to really limit the spread of hardcore porn to children at all. Things like <laughs> closing the barn doors after the horses are out. But uh, at any rate, you know, I think de-escalating the rhetoric a sort of lowering of tensions. I have no idea how that happens. Um, I try to go about it by being uh, politically inscrutable and difficult to figure out. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, hopefully on the local level, I mean, as always with liberalism, you have to want it. It's never just going to happen to you. Liberal democracy isn't a system of government that just sort of accidentally happens to states throughout history and boom, all of a sudden you have a functional liberal democracy. It has to be something that your citizens are willing to work for, which means that compromise and and some level of local control in the spirit of autonomy and self-determination is something that people have to want. And so as a parent engaging on the local level, I keep that in mind. It does not have to be entirely my way. Right. I still get to see my kids at home, et cetera, et cetera. I'm still a person in the world. I'm happy with my experience in Texas public schools, although clearly I've come a long way from agreeing <laughs> with everything that, you know, might we might have encountered back in the day. And I have to operate in that sort of good faith frame of mind. Beyond the individual level, it's very difficult to imagine how to how to de-escalate this because it seems to be of a piece with such a such a big phenomenon. Tim, what do you see as the way forward as a conservative? And, and and one one question I have about that is, you know, I I think conservatives, as I said, are are often right that the bureaucracy is stacked against them, but that's still going to be true after you change laws. <laughs> yes, I you know the it's the deep state was not real in the precise way that Trump described it, but it was definitely real in the sense that like there was a lot of you know bureaucratic resistance to his agenda that really matter. I mean, there's a reason he got his way on immigration, where he actually worked really hard at it, and Stephen Miller really worked, and he. And he's, 
got only part of his way there. But like in other places, he got steamrolled by the bureaucracy. And I think you, yep. you know, the, if, if you're up against, if you're trying to define government services and you're up against a bunch of government employees who don't really want to do the thing you want, you're, you're probably going to lose, even if the law comes to say what you want it to say. So I think, you know, both the, the conservative approach here of centralizing, I think both has a bunch of negative side effects and also isn't going to work very well probably won't make, cons- it'll make conservatives and liberals unhappy. So what, what is, is there some, a, a way forward that will make people happy? Yeah, it's, it's not going to work. You, you ban critical race theory, which is this sort of nebulous idea. And you just don't call whatever you teach critical race theory. And if you want to, you know, teach crazy stuff, you, you get away with it. Um, so, I mean, I think the choice localism devolution, um, not only bring about peace, but what what Liz was talking about with sort of being okay when you don't get your way. One thing that really helps that is feeling like you have voice and choice, which is to say, when we reopened during COVID, while the the public schools uh, didn't, I mean, when our Catholic schools did, while our local public schools didn't, one of the teachers said to me, because said, look, I know that all of the parents here are going to abide by the rules that we set because you're all literally and figuratively bought in. You all chose to come to this school. And so even if you oppose it, even if you don't think your kid should have to wear a mask, you're going to follow our rule because you had another option. Now, again, we I spend all my money and I write books, et cetera, to, to afford this for parents who, who, don't, um, who aren't that fortunate. Um, I, 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 have, I have six children all in, all in Catholic school. I hope to write six books to fund their, their K-12 through education and wish them luck on funding their own college education. But for people who don't have, uh, haven't been that lucky, um, that's why more of a school choice is better. Not just that you can choose a school that lines up with your own view, but that you feel like you, have, um, you can accept it when they disagree. But a, another key thing with our, with our older kids' schools, it's not just that we agree substantively with what a lot of the, what they teach, but both of them say parents are the primary educators of their children, and we plan to be excellent partners in your undertaking. That cuts a little bit against what Liz was saying of a, a liberal democracy educating it away. So that that's a, a piece I, I don't think we're going to make. But I do think devolution provides for more voice, provides for more choice, provides for more peace, even when, as a parent, you don't get your way. Let's leave it there for this week. Uh, I want to thank Tim Carney and Liz Brunick for joining me for that conversation. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Once again, Liz's piece is called Kids Have No Place in a Liberal Democracy. You can find it on theatlantic.com. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this newsletter and podcast and makes this independent media venture possible. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.